wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Links to Bleeding Daylight's social media channels are listed at bleedingdaylight.net. Please connect and join the conversation. Welcome to today's episode. What if you're not who you've always thought you were? What if you discovered that you're someone entirely different? My guest today believes that's not only her story, she would suggest that it's very likely to be your story too. Today's episode could change the way you think about yourself forever. It can be easy to get caught in the trap of comparing our internal world, with all its turmoil, to the shiny images we see of others in the public eye and on social media. But what if the perfect people we see are facing their own struggles? Sharon Hughes knows the disconnect between external confidence and internal pain. She's the founder of Confidence Academy, the host of Called to Confidence podcast, a confidence and self-worth expert and critical incident stress debriefer. Her first book, The Girl in the Garage, Three Steps to Letting Go of Your Past, became an Amazon number one new release. I'm pleased to have her join us today on Bleeding Daylight. Sharon, thanks for your time. Oh, Rodney, thank you so much for having me. It's a thrill to be with you. I mentioned the shiny images that don't always represent what's going on inside for people. Tell me about the success that you displayed to others. What were the achievements that made it look like you had the world at your feet? Oh, my goodness. You know, it's funny that that you lead with that because it was everything from being a swimwear model and being on a cover of a magazine to having an international wholesale home decor line, which was featured in numerous magazines, to you know writing a book, doing different things that were in the public's eye. And all the time, nobody knew the story behind the mask. That's what I like to call it. It's a mask that you put on. It's the I'm fine mask. And I think that that's extremely common, that we catch ourselves looking at people that look like they have all the success, the car, the house, the beautiful family, and we don't know what's going on behind closed doors. And it seems that there's been an acceleration of that these days with what we call influencers, those people who are famous for the sake of being famous. I mean, you had that sort of worldly success, as we might say, with all the things that you were doing, but there seems to be more and more people who They are only successful because of the image that they portray. How damaging do you see that as being? Well, I think that's incredibly damaging for people that are sitting on the, you know, the sidelines and they're they're wanting to look up to somebody as the influencer, the mentor, the role model to try to learn and glean from them. But when you're looking to something that is not authentic there's the huge disconnect. And that's going to lead people to keep thinking that, hey, I can be famous just for the sake of being famous, like so many others are. But what I found is when the accolades stop, and they do stop, there's an issue that you have to face looking in the mirror. And that's exactly what happened to me. I had all kinds of success 
I never had a confidence issue, but what I had was a self-worth issue. And it was really because of my past growing up and all the, the secrets that I had kept is I felt that I wasn't deserving of the good things. And I think that that's probably what's happening to a lot of other people that we see as these large influencers that are on huge platforms. They're behind closed doors, you know, they're using substances, getting divorced and married and affairs and all this stuff. And it's just because they're broken, messy people and they're trying to find a way to stop that internal bleeding. So they do whatever they can do to feel better, but those types of things just don't last. And you mentioned those secrets that you kept from your earlier life, from from when you were younger. Was there a kind of fear that hey, if if people actually only knew about this, all this would come crashing down around me? Well, I think that there was more of a fear that that was really deeply rooted in shame. When I talk to women that have been through difficult situations like like mine, being that I am faith-based, I, I always remind them that no matter what you've done or has been done to you, you are loved and wanted by the creator of the universe. And shame is this funny thing that tries to follow you around and call you out by the things that people have done to you or those mistakes that you've made to keep you small so that you don't really heal and move forward and shine brightly. So I think that that was where my fears were lying was who would really love me if they knew the things that had been done to me. And it's really funny is when you get to the other side of that, it's really not so funny at all, you come to realize what big fat lies those are. Because when most people, well, even people that have known me for years, when they've read my book, they came to me and said, I had no idea. And I thought, well, of course you didn't have any idea. I wore the mask. I thought that I was okay and I pretended to be okay. But what they would say is completely opposite of what I had believed for years. Instead of them running away, you know, and and not wanting to be in my world, they looked to me as a leader and a mentor and said, how did you survive that? How could you go through all those horrible things and come out the way that you did? It's interesting is the big message is to people that are hiding in, in shame and fear is that those are lies is that when you do start speaking up and sharing your story, is that people are going to really come around you, they're going to embrace you, and they're going to say, I'm just like you, like help me get through it too. The title of your book is The Girl in the Garage, and I guess that raises a lot of questions too for people thinking, what is this all about? So maybe you could give us a little bit of an indication of exactly what that title means. Yeah. And if you see the cover of the book, it looks like it's going to be kind of a thriller fiction type of read. And really, The Girl in the Garage is my my journey, what I went through, which was being raised in a home that was very dysfunctional and abusive. My parents ended up divorcing, and no matter who I lived with, and I was shuffled back and forth quite a bit, there was a different type of abuse in each household. Different things happened to me, like parental abduction. My dad took me out of a window 
and took me across the country and I didn't see my mother for seven years. And that rescued me from a stepbrother that tried to rape me, but brought me into another environment that was emotionally and physically abusive. And so the story is written very PG so that anyone that is been abused is not going to be triggered, but instead I'm going to walk them through so that I I say, this is what happened and this is how the false narrative started to form in my head of who I am. So there was many, many years of abuse and it really came to a head when I was 16 and I went to a Halloween party and I was handed a drink and I was handed this drink by a girl of all things, but I was drugged and I woke up in a garage seven hours later and I was being assaulted when I came to. So that's how the story, The Girl in the Garage came about is just walking through that that whole journey of trauma, trauma recovery, it's my faith journey also. It's me knowing that even though horrible things happened to me, that my Savior was always there. And then the rest of the book is a workbook. So anybody that is struggling with self-worth issues who's been abused or had trauma, they can get a breakthrough really quick. When did you first start to bring that story to light? You said that you're keeping these secrets. There was this shame that if only people knew, they, they wouldn't love me anymore. When did you get the courage to actually say, I need to talk to someone about this? You know, there was different times in my adult life. I had went to a little bit of counseling and I would tell some things, but I wouldn't tell everything. I think there was a way that some of this was just, it was just kept locked away. And it wasn't until gosh, it must have been 2018, I went to a speaker's conference. And at this conference, each of us were supposed to come with a five-minute talk to give. And when I got there, I felt like the Lord was telling me, you need to tell your story. And I call it bathroom negotiations with God. I stood in the bathroom of this beautiful hotel room pacing back and forth, trying to figure out how in the world I could ever tell this story and not make it like I was telling some crazy, toxic, throwing up all my emotions on people, but how to craft this story so that it's actually useful and purposeful. And at first I told God, no, I said, I'm not going to tell this. Why am I? I got on a plane and I flew here and I have something prepared that's very helpful to anybody anywhere. Why in the world would I change this to this particular story? And I was trying to get a hold of my dearest friends that knew a bit about my story. And I was getting messages back like, oh, it's okay, just do it. We'll be praying for you. And I thought, you don't even understand the gravity of what you're telling me to do. You don't even know the whole story. I negotiated a little bit more with with the Lord, and I decided I was going to be brave enough to share three steps to letting go of your past. I did it, and when I was done and I walked off the stage, I said, oh my gosh, that's the book. It's The Girl in the Garage, Three Steps to Letting Go of Your Past. Immediately, I just, I just knew like that was it. And about a year and a half later, I sent it to the publisher. So, you know, God's timing is funny and he always moves really fast. It's interesting you were talking about the fact that you had locked a lot of that story away. You weren't telling mm. all of the story to different people that you met with, to counselors. 
Is there a sense in which you were locking it away from yourself, not even daring to think it through in your own mind? Oh, I think so. Yes, I definitely think so. I think there's some things that just on the neuroscience level of thinking, it's just that our minds are really not designed to handle trauma. And I have very big gaps in my memory, which is really annoying to me. But when I sat down to write the book, I had to first create a timeline and remember the places I was and who I was with in order to make the story cohesive. And I realized at that point, wow, there's really big gaps. I don't remember things like birthdays and holidays for many, many years between probably, gosh, seven years old to maybe 18 years old. I remember just tiny fragments of many things. But then there's other things I remember really, really clearly. So maybe my mind has just shut some of those things away because it can't handle bringing them up. I think that most therapists would probably conclude that that's what has happened. You mentioned that once you started telling your story, there were friends who, instead of pushing you away, would embrace you even more. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, what about your family? What about those who really was their task to protect you? For instance, your parents. What has their response been to you telling this story? Well, they they actually don't know. My mother died in 1995, and I haven't talked to my father in 20 years. And I don't know if he's alive, but you know, he they're both in the book because they were both abusive in different ways. I've wondered what would they think about this, but I feel like telling this story and in the way that I tell it was my absolute purpose and calling. Somehow, in God's goodness and sovereignty, He knew every single thing that would happen. He knew how I would respond, and He knew that I would come to the place of being so healed from it and so okay with helping others that he he brought me here. I don't think that book could have been written without complete divine intervention. You said that this is all part of your faith story. What was it that actually drew you towards faith? What was it that drew you towards God in the first place? You know, I can't remember a time in my life of not believing in God. So many people have their big aha usually when they're a little bit older. But my earliest memories are believing in God. And my parents did believe in God. My father was the type of person that would say grace at the dinner table, but he was a very high-functioning alcoholic, never missed a day of work, but he was incredibly abusive as well. So, he was, you know, obviously not a role model. And I always, I've always wondered, like, how could he have actually known the Lord and done the, the horrendous things that he did? My mother was a different story. She believed in God, but she was very much the victim. She was the person that thought you needed to go crawling and begging God for forgiveness. She didn't understand the identity that we have in Christ. She just she didn't understand that. You know, it's it's interesting. I couldn't imagine my life without knowing the Lord, and I certainly couldn't imagine going through the things that I've been through without knowing that somehow God was there protecting me. 
I always believed that. In fact, in the book, when I talk about my stepbrother trying to rape me, there was a moment of, I believe, complete divine intervention. It was probably my guardian angel. A door opened that was a very creaky back door where my little room was. It was very close to this door. And that creaking door is what stopped my attack. But what's interesting is I never heard voices or footsteps, just heard the door. And I've always thought that that was God watching out for me. Were there times that knowing that there was a God made you angry at him for not stopping some of the other abuse that happened? No, and I'm glad that you asked that. Many people do ask me that. And many people have said to me that they are so angry because of the things that have happened in their life. I do address being angry with God and the issue of free will in my book. So, for example, let's use drunk driving. That's always a good one, and it hits it hits it the picture home that I want to paint. So, a family is killed because of a drunk driver. So, we're angry with God and we say, why? Well, we all have free will, and we get to choose whether we do good or bad things with our free will. But whether we choose good or bad, there's always a consequence. So, the drunk driver chose to drive under the influence, and somebody else paid a terrible consequence for his bad decision. We can't be mad at God for giving us free will, because if you want to pick the sandwich that you're going to eat today for lunch, you have to also be willing to pick the big, hard, difficult decisions that you're going to make as well. It's an all-or-nothing scenario. And it's really not fair to be mad at God when other people do bad things with their free will. You mentioned before about coming out with your story, telling people and being afraid at first that you would be shunned. I'm Mm. wondering if there was some of that actually happening with the sort of success that you had experienced before, those people that would have looked to you as being successful with your picture on the front of a magazine, your home decor line, and all of that, was there any pushback from that quarter of people who only looked at success in those sorts of terms? You know, I don't think so, because when those things were going on, like, for example, me being on the front of a magazine, that was in 1995. But the home decor line... Those were the later years, let's see, about 2008 to 2000, maybe 11 or 12. So since I shifted and I went into doing other things, that was something that I knew God wanted me to do. I had been holding entrepreneurial events for women, teaching them how to go out into the market and explaining how I had created my product line and you know, giving advice like that. But there came a point that that just wasn't enough. And right around the time that I was closing my product line, I just felt God saying, it's time to do something completely different. That it was really time to do what He had been teaching me and training me to do. And so I did that pivot. I wanted to talk about matters of the heart. I didn't know, of course, at that time that I would write a faith-based book and really start sharing more boldly my faith instead of 
talking about, oh, here's how to recover from trauma. And as a, you know, a side dish, you get a dose of faith. It's really, it's the other way around. I know his hand is in it. So I'm, I'm so okay with people that have unfollowed me. Like it, it didn't hurt. Some people think like, oh, it kind of stings when people stop following you on social media. It doesn't. It really doesn't. Because you want to reach the people that want to hear what you have to say. That's what's most important to me now. You talk about a distinction between confidence and self-worth. Maybe you can explain that to me. Oh, yeah. This is so good. So a lot of people say, oh, I could never do that because I'm not very confident. Well, I believe that confidence is a skill set. So we'll use cake decorating. Now, I'm the kind of girl that I get a box mix and the tub of frosting and I make a cake like that. But somebody that really knows how to bake a cake and decorate it beautifully and they put all the beautiful flowers and things that they make with the fancy frosting, that's a skill that you learn. And as you practice, you get better and you're more and more confident in that skill set. The same thing could be with giving a presentation, playing a musical instrument. Now, the difference is when it's self-worth, you start to feel like you're living in comparison. Your best is never good enough. You think that you don't deserve good things. You think that you don't deserve love. You're not worthy of a raise or a promotion. And living in imposter syndrome So I never had a confidence issue. I am an extrovert and I'm a very bold personality, but I had a tremendous self-worth expert. So even though I had accomplished many things, I always felt like it wasn't good enough. It wasn't enough to have had that international product line. And I'll never forget the day that my showroom called me and said, we just received an order from Dubai. And I was like, good Lord, Dubai? And I looked it up on a big map and I kind of laughed and I was like, this is funny. That's the place that has all those very exotic buildings and, you know, the things that we hear about them in the press. And I sat with it a while and I thought, wow, this is a lot of success. My business has now become international. And there was this fear of failure. There was this fear of People will call it fear of success. I guess it was a fear of success, but at the same time, I thought, I didn't work hard enough for this. And at the same time, magazines were sharing my product and you know everything was going great. Business was going great. But at the same time, it was just in the back of my mind. You don't really deserve this. You haven't worked very hard. And I didn't realize it at the time. I would have just written that off as some type of insecurity. But really what it was is it was a self-worth issue because at such a young age, going through so much abandonment by the people who should have protected me and taken care of me, when that happens, we as children learn to self-abandon. And when we start self-abandoning, our best is not good enough. It's not okay to be second or third in something at school, you always have to be number one. And I think this is where perfectionism births for a lot of people, is that they have to constantly be number one and also have constant affirmation and accolades. And like I said earlier, when the accolades stop, and they do, 
you feel lost. You feel off balance. You wonder, well, what do I do now? Because I have to keep pushing. I have to keep pushing for that success because it's not enough to just sit on what I've already done. I know that sounds crazy, but I found it to be incredibly true with a lot of people that I've coached. I'm sure that there are people listening at the moment who might not have had the sort of trauma that you've experienced in life, and yet there's certain things that you're saying that are setting off triggers in their mind to say, "Uh aha, I'm not the only one, that they have Mm -hmm. experienced that lack of self-worth and they're starting to think, I'm not the only one. Is that something Mm -hmm. that you find commonly in the people that you speak to and who are reading your book? Oh my goodness, there's more of us than you would think. When this question of what if you're not who you think you are that I propose in the book, when that was first coming into play for me, this was in about 2015. I remember I woke up one morning and I was praying and I said, Lord, I am not going to make it. And I was really at the lowest of low. I had been divorced just a couple of years. I had closed my my wholesale business I had just went through being certified as a life coach, and the lady that certified me had really opened my eyes to what I had suffered through without her really knowing any of the details. And so there I was laying in bed, and I just heard the Lord say, what are you believing about yourself? And I thought, really? You know everything, and you know my list. And he said, is it true? And that was the pivot. That was the beginning of the pivot. I still was struggling. I was still wondering, am I going to make it through this? But I held on to what he said to me, is it true? And shortly thereafter, I went into corporate training, and I was really blessed that I was given complete free reign to create any kind of training that I wanted to. So I was at a company of about 500 people. I started going around and interviewing managers and asking them what they need. And a lot of these folks had been promoted, but didn't have leadership skills. And I said, okay, I'm going to dive really, really hard into personal development. Because my theory is, you can develop yourself as a leader, but if you don't develop on the personal level, those personal issues are going to bleed out into your leadership. I think a leader can hide for so long in the C-suite with their office door shut, but after a while, it's going to show up. So I went into a training room, and I had about 25 people in there, all different ages, guys and girls, all different walks of life, different departments in the company. And I said, okay, I want you to think about what you really believe about yourself. What is that thing? And I said, don't tell me. It's the coach that said, you're not good enough. You won't make the cut. It's the husband or wife that walked away from you that told you you were a loser. It's the parent that said, you're not good enough. You're you're dumb because you failed a test. I said, that thing. And I went ahead and did all my training. And then at the very end, I said, okay, remember that thing I told you to think of about yourself? What if that's not you? What if that's not who you are? Who would you be? The room was silent. There was a lady sitting in the front. She was kind of a rough type of girl. You knew she had 
grown up in a neighborhood that wasn't easy. And without skipping a beat, she just blurted out, free. And I was taken back. I didn't expect that at all. And I said, okay, Lord, we are on to something here. So about a week later, I had another room full of people for the same training. And that time, two people in the room started to cry. One was a guy about 37 years old, and the other was a young girl in her early 20s. She was crying so hard she had to get up and leave the room. But the guy came up to me after and he said, I haven't spoken to my family in 10 years, and I'm going to call them tonight. I was kind of shook. I thought, what is this question, Lord? I had taken it so much in a personal level, but here I'm bringing it into the corporate arena and finding out all these people are carrying stuff around. And I was shocked. And that was when my eyes really started to open even more that everybody has something and we're all just trying to get through as best we can. So the whole time, my mask is speaking to your mask, is speaking to the other person's mask, and we're all absolutely convinced that the other person has it all together because we only see their mask. How do we Mm -hmm. start to unravel that? Oh, gosh. I don't think that that's an easy one. I think that that takes a lot of work on each individual to decide whether they're ready to take the mask off, they're ready to face themselves in the mirror first. If they can, you know, step forward, get some healing, confide to somebody what it is that they're going through. It's not easy. I I think it's hard for both men and women. It's different though. Men are told, you know, don't cry, suck it up, be a man. And that gives them that hard exterior. And then, of course, the women in their life are like, you're always so difficult, you know, be soft, be sweet. It's a mixed message to the poor guys because the women want them soft and loving, and then the world wants them to be these, you know, tough guys. And for women, You know, it's the uh, be pretty, be thin, be smart, don't talk too loud, you know, sit there and look nice. All of us are hurting. All of us are hurting. And how we solve the problem, I don't know. I don't know. Aside from just one person at a time has to work on their own personal healing. And I'm sure that part of the key is actually recognizing that we're not alone in this because we feel Mm. afraid to make that move because we're convinced everyone else has it all together apart from us. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's sad. You always hear the, the term hurt people, hurt people. And it's just, it's true. I've come across people on the road that they're just enraged and I'll look at them and I'll think, what happened to you? Like, who hurt you so deeply that you are so angry? It's really sad. But I think we need to look through a different lens. When we come across people that are, I like to call them prickly people, you know, they're like picking up a porcupine. They're difficult and they're harsh. Underneath it, there's somebody wounded. I mean, I don't think that we're born this way. In your book, The Girl in the Garage, you do talk through your story, but as you've already mentioned, you go through those steps of of helping people as well. What has been the response to the book? What sorts of feedback have you had from those who have read it through and taken those steps? 
No, the feedback has been amazing. I think when most people read it, it's such simple reading. They'll say, wow, it's so easy to understand. But then their second question is, it's so easy, does this really work? And I have to say, yes, it really does work. I think we make things way harder than they need to be. A lot of people really overcomplicate any anything that you're trying to do to you know get a win or get a success the book is short it's just maybe 105 pages and it's in three sections the first section is my story and the next two sections are workbook style and i wrote it that way on purpose so that somebody can get a breakthrough fast my experience has been that I would read a book that was 2 or 300 pages long and you get to the very last chapter where you finally get to the point and you're thinking, oh my goodness, I should have just skipped to the end of the book. And I wanted people to be able to get something in their hands where they're immediately getting a win. Straight out of the gate, there's steps of, you know, stop, think, you know, analyze your thoughts, question why do you think this? Why do you believe this about yourself? And it's mixed in with scripture also. So it's really easy. You also have a podcast that is helping people with confidence. Tell me a little about that. It was living a limitless life. Yeah, it doesn't really roll off the tongue, but it was super fun. I came in with the idea of covering faith, mindset, and leadership and have had some amazing guests on. You know, last year with COVID, the year of lockdown, I went through a lot of changes as well. And I thought, what does everybody, whether it's your faith, your it's your leadership, it's your mindset, what is one constant in those three? And it's that you need the confidence in each area. So like faith, like I was saying, my mother just thought that, you know, we had to go groveling to God, but that's not what the word says. In Hebrews, we're told, come boldly to the throne that you might find help in time of need. Okay, so if we're to come boldly, that's, that gives us powerful confidence that we're to come boldly. So even if you're working on like a leadership portion of your life, you can still come boldly to the throne for help in how to lead people. But if you're leading people and maybe you're not faith-based, you still want to know that you can confidently lead. And if you're working with mindset, well, what do we all think about? Oh, I need to do this. How am I going to do that? What do I need to know? I need strategy. I need vision, but I also need what to put it into action. I need the confidence to move forward. So I realized that that confidence was actually that constant, renamed the podcast. And then I said, oh, gosh, I think that's my next book. So called to confidence, creating confidence and self-worth in a broken world will be out next year. I'm thinking about the plot of most Hollywood movies and TV shows where it starts off, everything looks fine, then there's a conflict, <laughs> then it's resolved, and everything's wonderful at the end of that. <laughs> and we would love that to be the case, but I'm sure that there are still things, as you touched on just briefly there, there are still things that you are working on. Do we sometimes fall for this myth that we are going to get it all together and life will just be wonderful? Mm, yeah, I think that we do. I think we have Hollywood to thank for that, definitely. You know, I think that every day we have to be mindful 
we need to be taking every thought captive. We need to really search ourselves. I hate to use the idea of peeling an onion, but that's kind of what it is, as stinky of an idea as that is. One layer comes off and then I look at myself and I go, okay, what's next? What do I need to surrender next? What do I need to work on? What am I avoiding? And every single time I think, okay, that's done. I'm good. I've learned that no, that's done. I did a good job, but there's probably going to be something else revealed. And I think that that's just part of being human. We should always be growing. None of us should be the same person that we were a year ago, five years ago, maybe even a month ago. We should constantly be on that path of growing and pursuing excellence. I know that a lot of what you've said has resonated with people that are listening. So I'm wondering whether it's wanting to get hold of your book or listen to the podcast or just be in touch with you to be aware when the next book is released. How do people stay in touch with you or or find you? Go to SharonHughes.net and everything is right there. I'm easy to find. I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, but I do have a really common name. There's another Sharon Hughes with a podcast and I don't know the name of her podcast. So just go to SharonHughes.net and you will find me right there. And I'll certainly put the details to find you at SharonHughes.net in the show notes at BleedingDaylight.net so that people can find that and, and find you easily. Sharon, it's been wonderful to hear your story, to hear where you've come from and where life is going for you. And we look forward to seeing the release of that book next year. But I want to thank you for your time on Bleeding Daylight. Oh, thank you, Rodney. It's just been such a treat to share and just to get to know you, my my faraway friend on the other side of the planet. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.